Uncle Bulgaria at my hamster. After a first quite a sour podcast special with Stuart Lee, we're pleased to welcome another Midlands rabble rouser, Carl O'Connor, who you will better know as noisy electronic musician and techno producer, though he may well cringe at the label, Regis. Regis's downwards label has consistently released some of the best stern sex and death bangers around, continuing a day with today with recent records from Oak, Griebenstein and a killer remix EP of longtime quiet's favourites, My Disco. Last year, Regis showed the youth how it's done with TQ's reissue and sort of album of the year, Manbait, and in 2014 put his and Tony Surgeon's British Murder Boys project to bed with a box set of Pure Night of Wrongness in Japan. Carl, how are you today? I'm very hot. You're very hot? Yeah. In all ways. In all ways, <laughs> but I'm ready. Yeah, we had to have a negotiation before uh, Carl yeah. came in today about wearing... Shorts. I did. I, I phoned ahead to see if it was appropriate. Yeah, yeah. and we, 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 were, <laughs> we decided we would both be able to wear We would. Except we'd something really shorts. unsettling about, especially two men alone in a room with wearing shorts. I've had a real, you know, I, you know I, I've worried about it on many occasions. Luckily, there's three of us here. Even so, it's still, especially being British, there's something really un, unsettling about it still. But yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll soldier on. Exactly. And Seb's wearing shorts, our producer Seb. So uh, we're all good to go. Yeah. So what we're going to do today, you've picked nine songs yeah. um, from a quite distinct period of music. It's kind of, we keep this quite open. People can pick anything sure. that they want on these uh, Quiet Sour podcast specials. Yeah. What sort of shaped what you were picking? Well, I think these things are usually... People usually take this opportunity to sort of um, really demonstrate their cavernous... Uh, expertise and uh, influences within music and uh, the wide breadth of what they've been into, you know, their influences. But I think it's a pretty narrow band of what I've actually chose, to be honest. I think that everything's on about two, you know, two or three different, the same label. Yeah. And it's all been produced by Flood, pretty much. So... <laughs> Cool, and it's all from a specific period of it, time. No, it, re- it really is massively specific period of time that's was very much in real time the way that I um, experienced it I was pretty all the records were bought really like within sort of six months or a, a month you know maximum a year of them being released sort of thing was so, it sort of teenage years yeah totally well, it's all between I think 19 yeah 81 and 89 yeah pretty much yeah cool okay well we'll start off with uh, Matt Johnson and Song Without an Ending that's it So that was Matt Johnson of The The, but then not as The The, though yeah. that album actually came out. Yeah. That, re- that album that's from came out as The The later on, because he wanted everything racked in the same place, apparently. I can completely understand it, what he must have gone through at that particular point, because I think he had like, he had the first 7-inch was on 4AD, and then, because I think various band members were swapping around and stuff, I think he wanted to do that as a solo record. And, um, but then of course he went, <laughs> then he went back to The The again, and you know, and um, I bought that, at the same time, because Soul Mining came out, I think it came out in 83, but I think I bought it in 1984 when Soul Mining actually came out. And that album was actually racked up at the same time in Virgin. Uh, so I think maybe 4AD re-released it. It was the one where, because I, 
I got the copy with him on the front cover with the perm. And it was all, I mean, that cover's always upset me a bit. So it was always sort of stayed at the back of my record collection. But I think I bought it at the same time because, you know, when, you, when, you sort of, when you're young, you think, oh, I want to get into it. I really like what's happening with other. This is something early. I really want to get in. So you want to really expand on your record collection. And I really loved them. And I really... So I think it was maybe 4AD at that particular point with um, anticipating that Soul Mining was going to be a big record and maybe reissued... Um, Burning Blue Soul, which that is from. So um, it was a good mean. I bought, I bought it, and it sat, it sat in my record collection. I think at the back for a while because I played Soul Mining for so long. I think I got it on cassette actually, Soul Mining, because I had extra tracks. But then um, eventually I started to listen to it again, and um, it's just such an amazing record. I mean, Matt Johnson's it's a classic record to be honest. You know, in so in so many ways, but he's got these beautiful melodies that are just under this very discordant. Na- nasally horrible sort of noise noise that he sort of created it was really amazing you know was it why did you put this one first was it kind of like an early one yeah i think you? it was i think i tried to sort of within my mind always sort of try to do things very chronologically as well how i, I might have because it makes more sense to me when i'm you know it might not be the way that i listened to these records first or heard them first but i think it makes more sense to me i think i put it first because it was it really was the dawn of something very interesting with music especially with independent music in england mm. and um i was very much i think i just hit the right age where almost i could i really under- appreciate what independent music was from from the outset i i could tell the difference between artists that were on independent labels or weren't on independent labels and then you know previously before that i used to Maybe, maybe like listening to the police and stuff, you know, Zenata Mondata, that was, or, and things like that, what I, was my record collection. Then, you know, the start of the 80s, things we used to really filter, you know, I used to, that, that was all rubbish. And you could tell the difference between Spandar Ballet or yeah. Depeche Mode. There was an obvious difference between them and where it was coming from and, this, and the source was, and I think that was what was great about being English, is, you know, right at that, that particular time. How know. were you discovering music then? Were you sort of trotting off to the... Virgin Records shop and then going through and getting recommended stuff. Well, no, actually, it was, it was through magazines. I mean, it was, we really we had really quite great magazines. Um, we really had great magazines back oh, then. Oh, we're getting you know, get the pipe out, can't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, e- even the real pop magazines were quite good. Um, there was one in particular called Flexi Pop, who was great. I mean, they used to have, a, like, a, a free flex in the front of every record, and... I was quite. This is quite. This is quite subversive. They used to have like things like you know the cramps and meteors, and it was, it was essentially a pop magazine. Mm. And it was only till later I realised oh, the guy who actually run it was a guy called Mark Manning, who was in Zodiac Mine War oh, right. later. <laughs> and that's why there was all these ca- things about cannibalism and the, you know in it. And, the, and it was it was. And with that, he really sort of. It was great. You could have Depeche Mode doubling up with Fat Gadget. On a, on a flexi, and you know, you could have soft cell doubling up with B movie, mm. and and that's and that's how you found records. And there was there was a lot of really good adverts as well in like these magazines, and people used to name drop stuff, and that that was it. But it was such a narrow thing; it was such a small thing, and it was unimaginable now with the internet. You know how specific all of this really, really mm. was. I mean, it was it was it was it was day and night really. There was commercial music and there was alternative music and it was and that was it really were you kind of on your own in the alternative thing at school or did you have mates who were into I mean what was metal not still a big thing when you were growing up metal's a big thing always it doesn't matter if you go to the coolest part of the world there's always a metal there's always always a metal scene well not really I mean I think when I grew up there was um, 
well, the biggest rock stars or pop stars in the world came from Coventry. So that was the that was the that was the reality of growing up in Birmingham. You know, it, it was two tone. Yeah. You know, and it, it was of course, the the answers were them, the answers in their, you know, and, and stuff like that. So it was a very British centric. What people really really liked, which I think it was, it was almost like the second British invasion. So it was it was kind of good, really. I think for me. I didn't necessarily. I mean, I, I love two tone and the rest of it, but I, it was never something for me because it was always really very earthbound and rooted in normality. Really, even you know things like Dex's as well, you know. But it was all very local as well. So it was. Uh, I was always looking for something else, you know. An escape. Escape, yeah, because yeah. you know that's what music's about. You know, all of a sudden, you, you know, you discover music and you learn to speak your own language that your parents can't understand or your teachers can't understand. And then the more you get into it, you know, maybe a lot of people you go to school with can't understand. And then it just there's just a few of your friends who speak this, you know, your own language, which is fantastic. And that's that's what music was is about, it should be mm. really, you know. And that's and that's how it happened, really. Cool. And then so next we've got someone you mentioned, Fag Gadget from Fireside Favorites, which yeah. if I ever do a baker's dozen for the quieters, yeah, would be in there. It's oh, an incredible, that. incredible album. Um, one of the best British albums. Ever, I think. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, we're going to listen to Newsreel, please, Seb. Point the camera at the baby. Shoot the mother giving birth. Watch the blood run down the table. was Fag Gadget Newsreel. It would have been Frank Tovey's birthday last year. Uh, well, last week. Last week, 60, I know. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, but what uh, I, I do think, you know, you listen to Fireside Favourites and a lot of the other Fag Gadget records, and you think, what an under-regarded person he is. I just, I never yeah. quite understand why he's he's not had a reappraisal in the same way other people. Yeah, have. it's kind of weird. I think at the time it was because he was, it was just too ahead of his time and he, and especially the lyrics were maybe just a slightly too edgy for the for the charts. I think the first album I actually bought by Fagadji was like the one that was after this was Inconsonant because, like as I mentioned, for Flexi the Flexi Pop record, oh, I really like Flexi Pop, and there's a Fagadji track on there. So I, I bought the Fireside, um, the Inconsonant album, which is that amazing cover of him as Mr. Punch by Anton Corbin on the go, and that was like amazing LP. And um, I think that record, because it was released, when it was released, I think because it was such a complex record, there was a lot of instrumental tracks on there as well. And I think it was that particular time he was, he was really trying to find himself and moving away from the electronic thing, even though there's a lot of electronic stuff on there. I think he just confused people. You know, he was just too, it was just so confusing. And he just, and of course, he left all these hit singles off, off the albums. Mm. I mean, off that, you know, this album, Five Side Favourites, you know, Back to Nature wasn't on there. Yeah. You know, or, you know, I think there's a, yeah, the B side's on there, and a new version of the B side. Swallow it even on there. No, that's on the, that's, that's on, on the inconstant. That's the next. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, and as well in Lady Shave, and, and the hits weren't that's, on the next yeah. one. So I think that was that was amazingly bold move by him. I'm not too sure how the label felt. How had Daniel? I, mean, I think of course they went with it. Because, yeah, and, and rightly so because it, I mean, it's an amazing, just amazing. It was pretty much the greatest performer I've ever seen live. Yeah, you're saying that he he's one of your. We're going to talk about two of your top three absolutely um, performers today. Uh, yeah. wh- when did you first? When did you see Fab? Well, I saw I saw 
I, well, I, I first saw Frank Tovey when he was around the Sam Hall time. I saw him, he played the Mean Fiddler and he was doing a lot of the folky stuff. And, and even then he was absolutely just, just such a presence and such a, such a real, real performer. You know, real performer. I think he studied under Lindsay Kemp actually mm. at Leeds Poly. You know, well, not at Leeds, but it was obviously Leeds Poly. The, you know, that sort of spawned things like you know soft cell and stuff like that. But he was very much into performance art. But I think he, I think I'm right in saying he, st- he studied under Lindsay Kemp as well. So he was an amazing, amazing dramatic performer, quite frightening. And then when um, he supported supported Depeche Mode in the early 2000s. Um, he was frighteningly amazing, and he was still, still so good. It was, it was, it was shocking actually how good he was and how relevant he was. And I'll never for, forget watching him in Berlin at the, the Waldbühne in, in front of maybe twenty two thousand Depeche Mode fans. And he did the, obviously did the Lady Shade routine where he plucked his pubes and shouted it over everybody. They were absolutely horrified, <laughs> and then they started to go really nasty. I mean, because it's a very partisan crowd. Yeah. You know, and um, even for even for mute acts, and even known mute acts, like my God, and everybody was just. I think people were, like getting white, like like referee cards out for somewhere, like white cards. And everyone was going, oh, and he was amazing because what he did then, he I think he he, he climbed the, the rigging of the scaffolding, and he was beating his buttocks against them, and he was just shouting Depeche Mode, Depeche Mode at them. <laughs> riling them up even more and then he got stuck and it was spinal tap and then they had somebody I thought it was the end I thought it was part of the act but it wasn't and then it came down and they got the, eventually the sort of roadies got him down and it was just amazing I actually saw him back I saw, I saw him afterwards and um, I just sort of said to him um, that was amazing and he said I don't think it went very well <laughs> and I said no it did it went brilliantly and it was um and that was an amazing moment. I mean, that was one of those moments I'll always cherish. And we, you know, gave him a hug and everything. He was really pleased because it was such a different performance. The one on stage, to the person off stage, was um, you know amazing. You like these people winding up their audience a bit. Do you I, th- I think it's I, I, I love people who who do sort of commit career suicide in a way. I think it's something really really interesting to me about that. I really don't try to caught the fans and trying you know that, that's something massively interesting about that and uh, oh he did he did he did that mm. totally he was a he was a one but he, you know he genuinely did sort of scare people mm. you know he and he used to tar and feather himself for early yeah, gigs didn't he yeah and he used to like break, his, his legs were broke you know he used to really hurt himself as well and he was very you know wonderfully slim and skinny and very agile but he did really used to hurt himself i think he broke his legs yeah you know and so, or you know at least his shins and stuff which is like you know it's the real the real deal man and then that sort of goes along with the, the what I, one of the things I really like about Fireside Favourites is that sort of creepy body revulsion in things like Lady right. Shave isn't it just this sort of yeah. and it's very British that sort of fascination with the body and sex yeah and also this self-disgust like can we all wear shorts in a room? Yeah, you know, well, it's, it's true. It's, 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 is that something that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. I mean, there's, it's, everything I'm playing here has had some sort of influence on me, you know. And that's maybe why, maybe Frank Tovey and Fag Gadget, was, maybe they were just too English to get through to people. I think there's always that thing. But certainly, you know, there's pockets of America who do get it now. And there's, you know, I think there have been... People do sort of mention Fag Gadget a lot more now mm. and they sort of talk. But maybe they just talk about... Back to nature, and they just talk about Lady Shave. You know, they're not talking about gag or, or they're probably talk, you know collapsing new people. But not, there's so much more to him, and he was so comp- such a complicated artist in so many ways. 
And but yeah, I mean, you know, but genuinely one of the nicest people ever, you know. And I can hear some of the sort of that really shrill sort of trebly sound he's got. I can hear a bit of that in the sort of Sandra Electronics yeah. kind of thing. Was that was that your was Fagadic a big influence? Well, on I think where that was recorded, that was recorded at the um, at Blackwing Studios in London, which was like Eric Radcliffe and John Fryer's studio. And you can I love albums that are very much the sound of uh, the studio they were written in or they were you know recorded in, and. Um, as like you know things like Hanser and, and stuff like that. But I think a lot of Depeche, the early Depeche Mode records were recorded there as well. And it's a very distinct sound. It's a very bleak sound, and it's almost this sound of London, you know, you know, of that particular time. It's quite grim. I, I like that. And yeah, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely an influence, hmm. you know, certainly. Cool. Um, next, we've got uh, DAF. DAF, yeah, Deutsche American Freundschaft, American issue Freundschaft, uh, and then the track title, which I'm going to try and pronounce, Ich und die Wirklichkeit. Me and reality. Right? Me and reality. That's it. Seb, put the reality on, will you? So DAF are a kind of really big deal for you, aren't they? Massive. It's. I mean, there's a you can, you can there's a huge link that's undeniable between what they did and and what I did and the music I tr- try to make. You know, the, the repetitive. I never. I'd never heard anything like it before. Well, I can remember it. I can remember it distinctly the first time I heard it. My friend, very good friend of mine, Richard, Richard Harvey. He. He, he actually he got the album. Actually, his dad was a pilot, which you know, especially in the West Midlands, was actually a bit a big deal. It was it was so, it was so glamorous. He was a business pilot, and I think Richard asked his dad to buy this album because we'd seen it all in smash hits. The adverts were fantastic because it was on Virgin. He thought, oh my god, this looks amazing, and I think he made his dad buy it. And I think his dad bought it because he thought it must be educational in some way. What's you know, because it's German. And I didn't even think Germans were allowed to make music at that stage, you have to understand. I thought, okay, we could let them play football, but certainly not music. Uh, and, that's, and, that's, and so, it, you know, he, he, came, he came up to my house one night, because I, we could always play music around my house, uh, not, you know, into the night. And I really had, like, this boy, this youth cave set up in my house. I used to nick those sort of traffic signals from the, the, from the, the road, the, one, the blinking lights. We used to have mm. them set up. And he said, you, and Richard said, I've got it. I remember saying, let's listen to it. And he said, it's just amazing. And we put it on and it, and it was like nothing and ever. There was no choruses. And I thought, this is, surely this is not allowed. There's no choruses in this record. And they were singing in German. And it was like all of a sudden that we, we were open to this new not only a new language but you know german but it was it, it was amazing it was a real watershed for me from like british pop music or you know anglo-american pop music into a completely brand new world and half i always remember halfway through because the, his dad had given him the record um for, from the airport and uh we, i said what, what else is in the bag and he got I said, oh, i don't know and he got he opened it and it was a, it was a copy of spartacus 2000 which is like I think it was some hardcore spanking magazine. <laughs> that, to this day, I don't know why why his dad would have had it in there. And I think we've discussed it. We I don't think he ever 
We never brought I, it up with We dad. never brought it up again, but this was all part of the, the, mytho- the, the mythology that was around me listening to this record for the first time. So the second half of the record, we were just thumbing through this, this, this hardcore German magazine. And I think, what the hell is that? This is brilliant. This is exactly, this is European. This is, you know, I knew, I knew that, I knew that it, it was exotic. I knew that I was certainly wanted a part of it. And it was nothing like the reality I was experiencing in England. And, I, and it was great because it was on Virgin as well, which I thought was really brave by them as well at that time. And uh, so it was amazing. And obviously years later, I, I, I went on to work with Robert who became become a friend of mine, uh, Robert Gill, from the uh, from DAF, and it was it demystified a little bit of it. And you know, I always asked him about the recording process because I think again, like we were talking about the fat gadget, the you know, the studio thing, the production. There was something about that record that I that was unlike anything else, and it was to do with the production and the space. And obviously, it was produced by Connie Plank. Mm. And you know, I, I obviously I grilled Robert. Yeah, well, what was it like to work with Connie Plank in the studio? And uh, I mean, Robert being Robert and. I could see how it could have been a, how how important Connie Plank was in the making of those Virgin records, <laughs> because um, I mean Robert said, "Well, yeah, I, it was it was weird. Sometimes I'd be doing these loops for days on end, and Connie would just leave the studio and say, look, 'Look, I'm going to bed and leaving you with the keys,' because he must have got so his head must have been done in by Robert on his Korg <laughs> MS20 doing these endless loops. But he got it together. I mean, you know, he really crafted an amazing, amazing record that, uh, and all three of them are amazing. Mm. All three, all, you know, there's. I think this one came out second. This came out maybe to the tail end of 1981. And I heard it, you know, and I heard it a few months later. You know, yeah, maybe in February. How old would you be in that teenage? 13, yeah, yeah. February 82, yeah. So were you sort of then afterwards longing to go to this place of DAF and spanking mag? <laughs> pretty much, I, I, I was in. <laughs> By then, I was, I was ruined. But I couldn't go back, you know, then all of a sudden, the next day, almost, you couldn't... Because of that experience, you, you you really couldn't relate with anybody else at school. You know, people say, "Oh, you know, do you want to, you know, are you, are you do you want to, you know, talk about the football or something?" And it was almost overnight that I just couldn't relate to people because of this new experience. And, and especially Germany at that time, it, you know, you could with Paris and you know, you know, New York and all these other places, you could really define it because it had landmarks. With Berlin and Germany, it was so. Well, not Berlin, but with Germany in particular, you really, you had, it was such a, you know, it might as well have been the moon, mm. you know, I, at that particular time. And it was so exotic to me. That's interesting, the landmarks. I never really thought of that before. Like, most yeah. cities, when you're a kid growing up, you know them by well, you know, Par- the famous Paris. buildings and exactly. the kind of the things you get in your tricolor at school or totally. whatever. Whereas I, Germany was like, there's the TV tower, that's about it. That, well, Berlin, that, well, even, well, even uh, then, you, you know, the TV tower in Brandenburg, but even yeah. then, that was not, that was not apparent, you mm. know, you know. And you know, my only really view of Germany in those days was maybe, you know, I, I don't know what it was. I mean, maybe it was to the football. Maybe, of course, it was predominantly because of war films, mm. you know. Um, yeah, it was kind of weird. And then to have this art that, and this, and it was very modern as well. It, you know, I, you know the, the, the cover alone is one of my favourite covers ever. You know, people say, well, that's just obviously a gay cover. And I said, well, I never saw that. It was just like guys with short hair sweating. It was about exercise and it was about energy. And, you know, and that's what I was into. I thought, this is great. It's like, you know, you know that's, that's what I was into at that particular time. I didn't. And plus as well, at that age, I, I got it. You know, I really, really got it. It was like other things that, you know, like I, um, maybe the, the Matt Johnson record, I didn't particularly get at that time it took a you know you know it took me to a few years to really understand that but I really got that record and maybe because it was the production value maybe I knew it was part of some description but it was 
it was such a different pop record. And it was a great record to annoy me, especially it annoyed my dad, mm. you know, especially when I played Der Mussolini and stuff like that. And amazing, he never objected to the Mussolini or the Hitler bits, but it was always the Jesus Christ bit that he went, that, you've got to get that off. Really? Yeah. That was a, I, I, that was a no-no. So right. it was just like, you know, obviously I used to play it over and over and over again. Yeah. And, uh, until he left. <laughs> Not really, re- yeah. Until he left. <laughs> For good. For good. But yeah. No, he did. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, that wasn't your doing. Uh, no. well, I'd like to think it was. Yeah. We're, all, we're all okay about it now. We don't talk about DAF, though, with my dad anymore. <laughs> that's a f- no. f- finished subject. No, no. <laughs> Speaking of pop music that's weird, we're going to talk about Cabaret Voltaire yeah. next, which I think they, out of all the, a lot of these groups or people we've ever had, they've managed to combine experimental music and absolute hooky hooky tracks yeah. haven't they really well they did I mean the thing about the cabs I think they were always one one note or one chorus away from a number one record you know there was it was everything was in place with them and it should have happened they were on you know major labour back but they just didn't they just it didn't happen because I think it was well they could they couldn't do it you know they it's not that they couldn't do it they just couldn't make music for mass cons- well it was actually that's not true as well because you know they, they sold they shifted units but they just they could never get through on a pop level, even though the records were all, you know they were very poppy and very and very accessible, you know even back then they just never yeah it was just that one thing about them that they could never break the, the top forty. We're yeah. gonna listen to animation. Okay, you can take this from me and then get out of here. So yeah, that was Cabaret Voltaire and animation, and we yeah. were just talking off mic. We probably talk about it on mic about you know the, the, the spawning, the things that Cabaret Voltaire have spawned. You know, Rich H. Kirk is sort of yeah. uh, is doing his stuff. There's the Cabaret Voltaire name is still being used. It's obviously not original people. And then Chris Watson, who I I just done a feature with him earlier in the year about recording cowpats in Newcastle Amazing. and uh, recording the sound of turkeys being eaten. And, <laughs> and you were saying about Russell Haswell. Well, yeah, I was on the phone to Russell once, and Russell, I've got, I'm, I'm recording, uh, I've, got, I've got to go, I'm recording the sound of, Chris Watson's coming around rec- recording the sound of bells in the local church in East Anglia, or wherever, wherever, was it Suffolk? And I said, oh, and it must have been the only church in England with this special tone that Chris Watson wants to sort of record. And I think that, it just puts us all to shame, you know, the rest of us, oh, techno, electronic music. No, the, 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 yeah, Chris Watson's the real deal. Yeah. I mean, it's not on this, obviously not, this was when it was, you know, it was, it was the duo, but like, um, yeah, and this is, <laughs> it's the real deal, you know, in so many ways. And I love those stories. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. got to be the right tone. Of, it's the right time of day as well, I think. <laughs> when, 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 when there the, had to be a specific peal of the bell or something, or the right bell ringer. Yeah. I don't know. Some particular old dear. It was, yeah, it was, it was definitely her had to be doing it, pulling at the time for Chris Watson to be able to record. And that's exactly the way it should be. When you were, when did the kind of the, obviously there's that sort of weird thing where Cabaret Voltaire crossed over into club music and you know they tracks like that are very much club club doable I yeah. suppose. What what was your experience with clubbing in Birmingham? I remember I, th- I think I remember you saying you sort of worked in a, a, what, a nightclub. Did you in a cloakroom or something? Well, I, I, when I worked in it was a nightclub of sorts. Um, yeah, in, in the mid eighties was when I was yeah I used to work in the in the cloakroom sort. Um, 
It was quite depressing, really. But I used to always try... Even then, I felt a lot of the stuff I liked was old-fashioned. And it was like... This was about 85. And um, it was actually when a lot of the Chicago house... Especially you know, things like Jackie Body and stuff like that was coming out. And I used to hate it. And I used to bang my head against the wall. I thought, oh, this is just so awful. This is, this is the repetitive nature of it. And there's all the type of people who were in there. So oh, this, this is like hell on earth. Um, obviously, later... I obviously appreciate it now, but yeah, it was it was pretty dismal, really. It was more gig scene though. It wasn't it wasn't really clubbing. It was like, I mean, I used to love to go to gigs because I also always saw nightclubs as a place that the people who I didn't want to hang out with went to, and gigs were places where I could really understand. And plus, you could you know you could you could go out at half eight, go mental, and be on the eleven o'clock bus home. Yeah, that's the it's the endurance thing. I remember uh, going to um, you know now nowadays if you want to go to Corsica Studios see you play or something you have to go home at 10 in the morning it's quite tiring well, I, I, well I not, not everyone goes home at 10 in the morning <laughs> I, I think that's can't ever leave yeah. <laughs> that's well you've got to wait till the tube till it starts true. to get at 5 and then by the time you waited then yeah. you might as well keep going well this is a massive shift and I suppose it might be a generational thing um, unfortunately I do have, I kind of spam I, it was always alien to me I thought staying up Staying up till two o'clock was that was pretty much the maximum, and I was happy with that. I could go home and stuff. But then the first time I went to Berlin, it was like, oh god, you, know. <laughs> you have to stay up. Like, I thought this is you never got into the staying I, I, up. I, I, I kind of slowly had to get into that, but mm. it was it was really alien to me. But yeah, I mean, back to the cabs. I mean, like you say, they spanned everything. My well, Richard H. Kirk in particular, you know, the the, the early stuff into this the, the the some bizarre virgin years, which are my favourite, and this is how I got to really, especially this album. Is how I really got into them because I think actually I bought the twelve inch first because Dave Ball uh, from Soft Cell was on it and obviously Soft Cell were at that time. Well, one of my biggest influences, my favourite band actually, and so I bought everything on Some Bizarre and as I bought pretty much everything on Mute as well at that time. It was like a one stop shop. It was so easy. You know, you didn't really have to research much. You know, it was all there for you. On those two labels, they pretty much had the cream of the crop of everything that I was interested in. And um, but yeah, the cabs of Richard H. Kirk in particular, you know, he spanned this period and then the later period that you know when he, he worked with Rob Gordon and he did this, this you know, the, he went into dance music and he almost made dance music very acceptable for me. I understood dance music through Richard H. Kirk actually, right? You know, and it all you know he really bridged the gap between old and new. And I thought, okay, well, if Richard H. Kirk's doing this. This is really interesting, especially a project he did called Zon with Robert Gordon that was on. Network Records in Birmingham. And I thought, oh, wow, this is pretty amazing. And it, it made a real connection for me. So the cabs are hugely important to me. Is that kind of how you ended up making techno down that route that he sort of showed to you, do you think? Is that I, I think it, I think it? I think between that and LFO, LFO, um, I, really, I really started to understand it because I never really understood the Detroit stuff previous to that. It was always, it was very rooted in soul music, uh, which I, I had no real interest in. It seemed kind of, to me, it didn't really resonate with me at all. Even though it was electronic, it just didn't really resonate with me. And I didn't really get... I got it, but it was nothing for me. It really didn't seem to have any edge. It almost seemed that we were going backwards with electronic music because it was quite simplistic. I think at that time, sampling was so... There was, you know, people like Coil, you know, really pushing boundaries with sampling and things. And I couldn't then go back and regress to sort of almost preset sounds, which a lot of the Detroit stuff was at that particular time. And it was only really when Jeff Mills um, 
came came along that oh okay I can totally see what Jeff Mills is doing because I could make a connection between DAF or or Night Sareb and it was like okay this is something I can really that really spoke spoke to me and you know obviously without Jeff Mills that you know I certainly wouldn't be doing what what I do now mm. the music and he was you know it, but he's you know that that's all part of the line it was just that edge that music that you know that I that I really, really enjoy and still still do enjoy, you know, mm. music. Especially electronic music. It's so, it's so easy to make electronic music very pedestrian. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of generic, you know, things that look nice on boom-to-cut-shop music, you know yeah. what I mean? There's, there's, and there's tons of it. Deluges. deluges well, I'll tell you what, there's, there's, we're not going to pick on boom-cut, so there's worse, oh my God, there's, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the, you know, there's other stuff in general mm. with the way people make music. Now, because it's so easy to make music, I think when we would, even when we first started in you know '93, to actually want to make electronic music, you had to run the gauntlet of going through a, a guitar shop first with all the rockers in there to so go to the very back to buy a synthesizer, which was disgusting. But you know, and then bring your synthesizer back and then find out okay, you can't just make music with a synthesizer; you need a drum machine as well. And and it, it, was, it was this real effort that was required back then to make electronic music that. That's not there now. You can pretty much make music if you buy cornflakes and you can get a program out of cornflakes packet. You know, it's <laughs> it's true. It's not any worse or any better, but it's it's it was definitely hard. It was definitely harder to make music back then. Mm. You know, and I think it was it, it was because you were investing in it as well. You were investing in what you were trying to. do. You really were trying to invest in what you were doing. Do you think that shaped the sort? Of, I mean, one thing about the, that sort of big compilation of all your earlier stuff that came out the other year, it's quite yeah. cranky. You know, it's this sort of yeah. hard crankiness to it. Nasty. So, yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, it was so... <laughs> I mean, I, I actually realised recently, we put a lot of records, especially on CD, out that I didn't realise that we we must have released it years ago, and it was all in mono on CD, and I didn't realise because when I did the transfer, I must, one of my cables must have been broken. <laughs> and all these records have gone out in mono and stuff, and people always ask me, well, why is it in mono? And it, it was really that. It was shambolic. And to this day, there's there's that that really that, that that's followed me all the way through. Shambolic. Oh, just, just yeah. how how have I made it this far? <laughs> you know. But do you like that sort of happening? Mean, there's quite a lot of happy accident artists on this list, aren't there? Is it sort of oh you know, heroic? I like to call it. There's yeah. a lot of heroic. Yeah, happy. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing. You know. The, the, have you ever seen the book, the book of heroic failures? It's a great read. It's like um, I'm not in it. The uh, no, no, you're not. You're not in it. It tends to be historical figures, like the uh, no. the general whose last words when he stood <laughs> on the parapet were that they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. And, and God, you know, things like that. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, everybody on virtually everybody on this list could be in that book. Yeah, that's okay. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then we mentioned Soft Cell, and we're now going to uh, have Dave Ball yeah. of Soft Cell with uh, Genesis Peorage. Yes. And this is Sincerity. Wonder troubled sleepers, serpent crimes and twisted creepers, snakes of life become grim reapers. Smiling with your gods on graces, frowning with the creatures' faces, kicking off the ravenous traces. So why were or are Soft Cell your favourite band, Carl? It's I, f- I find this very difficult to sort of explain to people, especially in America, uh, especially now, um, 
but I think I just hit it at the right time um, with, with everything. And as much as I love the Human League and I love love Depeche Mode, I think at that particular time I I knew Depeche Mode were young and they were like pretty much like they weren't too dissimilar to the people who was who were in my sixth form, which is great. Human League were fantastic, but I it was still. It was still something that I, I loved, but it was it was just didn't really. But soft sell, I just knew there was they were wrong. I knew they were out there. They were they were they were in Soho, which was sounded fantastic. I knew they were having sex. I knew there was dwarfs. I knew there was all these things that I you know there was certainly a world away that I wanted a part of. I knew there was drugs. I knew this was sounded absolutely an amazing world, and it it was pretty true, really, to be honest. And for a pop band, because they weren't a pop band. I mean, they were pretty. They started out from Leeds Polytechnic again, a year below Fag Gadget. I think it was very. Must have been a you know quite a rarefied atmosphere there for all of Hotbed. But they never really fitted into anything until they had that hit, and that was you know it's like, it's like they keep saying people's jaws were dropping, and when when they had that hit. But I think they were expected from. I think they were, and then from that was unexpected for them to have that. I think since then, being who they were, they were old enough for that particular time. I think they were like mid-twenties or maybe 23, 24. They were trying to get away from that ever since because their art school background really, mm. r- really made that... Ha- they had to happen for them. And, it was a, and they were very distinct individuals, I think, and Dave Ball in particular. Well, not in particular, but obviously Mark Ullman, Mark Ullman and Dave Ball. And that, it's a very narrow band. Uh, it was a very short time frame, actually, of, from maybe from like... Set, September of 1981 to when they split up in 84. They made so many amazing albums, not just the Soft Cell albums. You know, Mark Ullman made the Mark and the Mambas albums, which in special records for me. And Dave Ball, amazingly, was allowed to... Phonogram allowed him to make this record. And it doesn't often happen that they let the the keyboard player or the bass player of a band make a record. It's usually, they, they, you know, major labels want to really push the, the, the singer because that's all major labels were really about then. They're about splitting the band up. You know, and the talent's always the major, the, the lead singer usually. But they let him make this record and the, the people he let sing on it were pretty amazing. I mean, I, I didn't, I, I got it for Christmas. Yeah, I got it for Christmas in, um, must have been yeah, Christmas of 1983. And you know, spending Christmas with, Gavin Friday and Genesis PR edges. That's that's that's, that's great. Was, was that your in, intro to sort of Genesis PR edge work? Like, yeah, no, through really, this record. Yeah, completely. Because I mean, you know, you read the you read the sleeve notes, and then you listen to the track. And I always meant, you know, again with my friend Richard, we used to sort of say, well, we knew it was frightening. You know, I I genuinely thought that Gen- Genesis PR edge was a, a a voice that I'd never heard before. And I used to think, God, this person... You used to think, well, there's something going on here that's not about pop music. And I genuinely felt that, even even then. And I was... I think the thing was, we used to say, well, it almost sounds like he's behind the curtains in your bedroom singing, yeah. which is re- it was really, really upsetting a, a lot of the ways. And, then, and as well, that generation as well, I, I, th- I was the generation who really discovered Psyche TV not knowing about it. Um, not knowing about Throbbing Gristle. Because th- th- those records weren't available. There was no re- real press talking about Throbbing Gristle. I think it was only when Mute reissued all their records in maybe 85. And then by that stage, or 80, I think they reissued them in 1986. And then I thought, oh, okay, there's this other band called Throbbing Gristle. And then obviously there's a whole brand new world that's open to you. But you know, I, I was definitely discovered um, Psyche TV and Coil 
through this record actually, actually John Balance is on the cover of the record, sleeve of the mm. record. He's he's banging the drum and I think yeah, it's B from Into a Circle draped over that big timpani. So it's it was all linked and then you used to read all these names on all these fantastic names on the sleeve notes like, Well who's David Tibet and who who's you know, who's Genesis Piorich, who are these people, you know, who's Gavin Friday and as a result you you discover the virgin prunes and that's exa- and this is great, that's what was amazing about Soft Cell, you know Without them, I wouldn't have discovered, you know, Sid Barrett, Scott Walker, Jacques Brel, all these things. And then in turn, you go back to school after the after the Christmas break and you've, you've got literally nothing in common with the people you're at school with, mm. you know. Because how can you talk, well, you know, I mean, I'm into Brel now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Doesn't go down well in the Midlands in the early Well, no, I mean, you know, as you know, sensitivity in arts, it's, it's blacklisted and certainly in the West Midlands then. I mean, if... Anything to do with art is, um, it's like witchcraft, basically, you know, you, you, you're burnt at the stake. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Were you ever tempted to join the Temple of Psychic Youth? Um, or did you join? During the, <laughs> okay. At the end of, certainly at the end of the 80s, I was involved in a lot of Temple Benefits gigs. I was really, really massively interested at that time. It's, it's, of course, it's naive now you know in 2016 to talk about this but it seemed amazing i mean they used to have the leaflets that were all printed on church you know the sort of same leaf you get at church with like the paint on that sort of orange and very lurid sort of paper mm. and it was amazing it said like, look you know donate here that we're going to have this big house and we're all going to come here and we can all do this and it's it sounded like you can get sex basically which is brilliant which uh, yeah a bit of magic a bit this sounded you know to a 15 or 16 year old that this is exactly what i want to be doing and the music was great. I mean, the music was pretty great as well. I and mean, their first two Psychic TV albums were just so amazing. Of course, Mark Allman sang on, you know, For Stand a Chance as well. So, I mean, it was all interconnected. You know, so, so for me, it was completely natural. It was all very, very natural for me. And it, that, was, it was, a, that was my reality at that particular time. Mm. But yeah, but yeah I, I, was, I was involved to an extent, definitely at the late eight, you know. And I still keep in contact with some of the people. Actually, the... A few of the people are working in techno, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good... I won't name him, because he will kill me, but he's a good friend. Right. I'm quite a fairly prominent techno artist, and he was... Yeah, he's... Yeah. He's involved in the... Yeah, this, <coughs> yeah this, he's, he's all there. Okay. I'll hide his identity. All right. Um, and last night, uh, you went to see The Bite of the Twin film about Genesis. Yes. The Orage as well. Um, and Genesis's uh, voodoo twinning ceremony. Yeah, lo- lots of chickens bit the dust in that film. Yeah, a high chicken. It was a high chicken count. I was going to have um, some chicken McNuggets after a Kentucky, but I did. I don't know. You know. You no, no, no. <laughs> it was actually really good. Yeah, it was. It was really, really good. And it was kind of. I find it really touching with Genesis on on just a very basic level. I think it's very interesting what this dedication he really still has to it, to, to the whole project, and you know that he is very still centred with it and it's very much part of his everyday ongoing life and a lot of people you know most of us would have maybe moved on or done something different so it was a very touching film about his it was very well it was a great film as well I mean Hazel McCarthy mm. did it and uh, Douglas McCarthy obviously Knight's Reb compared it brilliantly yeah we're going to talk about uh, Knight's Reb in a bit um, probably let's do should we talk about Fetus first can you play us uh, Sick Man Seb <laughs>
We can turn off now. It really doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, that's <laughs> Ever. a fantastic track, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, he, I can't, when I, when I, I choke up when I start to talk about Jim Thurwell, because especially though, in the age of digital editing and the age of modern music, it's so impossible for any of us to really understand how he made those, that music. He was the laborious editing. It was he played everything himself. Um, just amazing how he actually did that, and not just that he did the record covers and the. I mean, his lyrics. I mean, people talk about the music and the record covers, but his lyrics are absolutely amazing. I mean, super califragilistic sadomasochism. I mean, come on, <laughs> that's brilliant. The greatest, it? yeah. Ever. I mean, and there's lists of them, and he he's such a singular talent and. I think a lot of the people actually on the on the list that I've just noticed are either solo artists or in very very small not they're not full groups really. But and there's something that I think is noticeable and they're all connected. It's part of the kind of mute family mute some bizarre, bizarre yeah you know and and the way they connect to you know like um, Bruce and Graham from Wild did the production on Matt Johnson you yeah know, and I love that about that whole and world fact, yeah, fact, they yeah. all kind of. Everyone appears on other people's records, not in this sort of like naff collaborate way. It's just true. people sort of seem to be it's true. I mean, around I, and, and do weird stuff together. Well, it's true. I mean, like you know, Mike Thorne, who produced Wire, produced Tainted Love. You mm. know, or, or, you know, all, all these, all these produced soft. So it's all interlinked of these amazing talents who really didn't really fit into the idea of what had preceded it in the seventies, and really tried to do, and were a product of obviously punk. And everything that had gone on before that, but really try to make extremely out there music, and and I lapped it up, and it was like I said, it was very easy then because it was if it was on some bizarre, I'd buy that, or if it was on mute, I'd, I'd pretty much buy that as well. Is that sort of the downwards philosophy that you're trying to do? That that kind of have you can people can rely on you for. <laughs> Not a certain, not the same <laughs> thing. But. I, I, no, I, well, of course it is. I mean, great, great independent labels are built on really pretty, pretty much the people who run them. You can, t- you can, you know, if you talk about mute, you're going to talk about Daniel. If you can talk about some bizarre, you're going to have to talk about <laughs> eventually Steve O. You know, same with Four AD. You know, Ivo. You, you everybody, you know, and that's pretty much it. So, the great independent labels, you will the, the figureheads, and it's all it's all pretty much in their image. You know, and that's if anything, I'd like to. You know, that's hopefully what I've done in some small way in the in the in the techno years with downwards. Really, yeah. yeah. So I have something very distinct, but very much in my own image. Whether that be good or whether that be bad, you know, whether it be a hit or a miss, you know, it's just, it's definitely from me. Mm. You know, and was that sort of like you know, all these people, you know, often have been sort of slightly reacted against, like being part of EBM or being part of post-punk or what have you is, it, I mean, we, is that your sort of like reaction against techno that you you, yeah. you often have you, 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 you said that word you said the post-punk word you're gonna have to go in the go in the naughty room yeah, yeah, you not like have to you. Is that? no I mean <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is people, a lot of the stuff I like is post-post-punk yeah so it's after it yeah but no you of course you know you're right I mean yeah I mean it's not really well I don't really I never really understood techno I mean I, I'm always very envious of people who got it from you know this is it's the it's the core of what they are and what made them them. I was, and it always sounds very opportunistic of me, but the way that I found in on it was it was a really a vehicle for me to make um, instrumental electronic music, um, and that was it. You know, and I thought, and that's what I loved, especially about Jeff Mills. When I first heard Jeff Mills, it was my okay. This guy's doing exactly what I want to do. 
It's very abrasive. And in fact, I think what Jeff Mills and Underground Resistance did was very unique. They turned the tables on what we usually do to the Americans. I think they took all these extre- these European influences of craft work and you know, possibly DAF and stuff like that. And then they really put a Detroit spin on it. And then they made this whole brand new thing. Mm. And that's what I really felt they did. And that's why it really resonated massively with me and still does, you know. Did you ever go out, sort of out raving to see Jeff Mills play? Well, yeah, I mean, you- I went to Lost, actually. Well, this is one of the great things. I think I went to Lost with... Um, it might have been... It wasn't with Justin, or Broderick. I think it might have been with Mick Harris uh, from Scorn. And we... I think we were just dis- we went down to London. We were disgusted. Oh, when's he going to come on? You know, come, come on. We were, we, were, we were there just pointing to the, our imaginary watches on our wrists. When are you going to come on, mate? I think it come up at four o'clock. Which we really enjoyed it. But it, was, it was just too late. I wasn't prepared for it. It was great. But it, was, it was so fast and it was so brilliant. And it was, it was not like I imagined. Because in those days, there was no internet. We didn't know what people looked like. I really imagined Jeff Mills to be like about seven foot tall, about at least 20 stone. <laughs> and just mangling the records and smashing. That's what I, you know, and he, and he wasn't. He, you know, he, he was this wonderfully um, sinewy, you know, almost in, just just as a wonderful DJ and just amazing to watch. And that has he remains now, you know, because he's someone who's just really stuck to his own path. And I, and I could definitely see the link. I, I can make the link there and there. well, not there and then, but I made a link. Where, okay, you know, this is definitely something I. That really interests me, and there was a real great period then for about three year, years in techno. That it was amazing. I really enjoyed it. The way people release records was interesting. It was genuinely exciting, and I think we were. I really felt that we we're on the edge of something that was. It was definitely new, and it had no history, and you know it, it was totally, and it wasn't shackled down by any any real history at that time. And it was kind of it was wonderfully naive, and it was very brave. A lot of it and. You know, most of the records now sound like they were pressed on the back of a digestive biscuit, but you know, it's you know, it's different. Yeah, it was just different. Yeah. But it, it, that, that was my that was definitely what, why I I could see my way into it. You know, it was it was really really important. There. It was a means to an end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it was it was it was it was the time where you could you had your place again. You know, after all these years, thinking, well, you know, I want to be so and so. I want to be this. I want to be the lead singer of someone. And you know, you're getting your hairbrush or you know. Not that I had a hairbrush, but you know, <laughs> what, uh, you know, you're in front of the mirror. I want to be so and so, and I think it was a real good sh- shift around about the reality of what could be done. And you, you know, it, it, it was your way into art, really, which is, I think that, that's the great thing about techno. I think it's allowed a lot more people, you know, th- their way in to making something artistic. And I think that's the really great thing. Just you know, you see all these disparate people, people on, on aeroplanes now. You know, I think. If it wasn't for techno, you certainly wouldn't be travelling. You wouldn't be in airport lounges and you wouldn't be sort of travelling or let alone, let, you know, not let anywhere near an airport. <laughs> and I think that's kind of quite good. <laughs> that's quite, you know, a lot of, uh, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of uh, standing in front of mirrors and microphones, we're going to listen to some Nights of Reb. Oh. Have you never wanted to be Douglas McCarthy? Ne- have I never wanted have you, to be? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you watch those videos, I mean, even like when a couple of years ago when he came out and looked like the seediest photocopier salesman mixed with oh. the evil Terminator on stage, he did look like the coolest frontman I've ever seen. I mean, to be honest, yeah. How can you not want to be here? Well, we had the haircut. I mean, he had, he had the haircut that changed everything. <laughs> okay. Back in the day, you know, short back and size wasn't fashionable back then. And when he had, oh my God, it was, yeah, anyway. The man who changed... The nation's haircuts, Douglas McCarthy <laughs> and Knights Reb, and isn't it funny? Mm-hmm. 
how your body works. Um, <laughs> yes, that was Nice Reb and... Uh, Carl says he wants to smash things up. Please don't do that in our office, Carl. No, we haven't got you know much what money. I mean. I just want to. I just want to walk down the road, and it just makes me feel great. It make, I think it was that time as well because a lot of the music I played before, you know, we you played before that I've on my list. I wasn't really old enough to really experience it in a, a, li- a live sense, but I think Night Sereb along with the Jesus and Mary Chain, were the first time ever really that I, I felt, oh my god, I'm old enough to actually go out and experience this in real time, really. And especially Nights of Reb, I mean, my God, the gigs were just, they were so good back then. I and mean, this was the B-side of, I think, Warsaw Ghetto. Well, anyway, it was on a record. Any, and it was, this is, and it was just such an amazing, amazing record because they had everything. When I listened to it, it was obviously, it's obviously DAF influenced, but also it's very English. It's very much like early te- the very first Test Department record. It had, they had all their influences in place and it was all, but they were from Essex and they made it work, but they was, but they were they were so well informed and they looked great. They looked they, that was the thing. They looked amazing and they performed so well. I mean, he, he was like, you know, electro Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm. Really, he was just just amazing. And I think the main thing when I first saw them, what, what singled them out for, for for me from electronic bands up until that point, I'd just seen electronic bands with keyboards. If you see, you know, if you saw any, but they came on stage and they just had those. The samplers on stage. There was no keyboards, and I thought, "What's going on here? Where's the keyboards?" And they came out, and they just—it uh, was just amazing from beginning to end. You know, I always remember—I remember those gigs fondly because it was great. Because I used to come down the train, you know, and you always—you know—a lot of gigs when I used to come down. Sometimes you always just deliberate: "Oh, should I leave before the end?" You know, and then you know you don't have to sleep in the station until the morning and stuff when I go back to Birmingham. But it was never always the case with Nights of Rare. It's like, oh no, man, we're staying to the end and having a. Pogo, you know, and yeah. it was just it. It was good because you have, you could go there and have a proper tear up because it was um, people were up for it. You know, the fans were up for it then as well. Not that there was many people to be perfectly honest in the early day. You know, especially on that Total Age tour, there was there wasn't many people at all. Really? No, not at all. Because there was there's also people. I mean, I mean, now we we, we you know in my, my, back then there was a real shift from that Total Age when they re- when they recorded um, Control. I'm here because a lot of their old fans said, "Oh, you're going dancey now." You're going, you, you, you know, you're selling out when Control came out. And a lot of people really just didn't get into it. Like, you know, a lot of the hardcore fans just didn't want that at all. You know, they didn't want this dance thing, mm. you know. And I know it's kind of almost impossible to think now because they're, they're so connected, those two albums are, in many ways. But there was a massive split at that particular time, right. you know, especially that Total Age tour because, uh, you know, you just definitely notice the difference of that particular... Certain people who... <laughs> there's this one Japanese guy who used to come in full... Second World War Japanese imperial outfit, which it was pretty amazing when you think people used to walk the streets of London and that particular, and that was great. So it was him, about five people from who were probably persuaded from the mute office to turn up and stuff. That one member of Depeche Mode, Russell Haswell, and me and my friend Richard, and that was that was pretty, you know, that was it. And there was a couple of people from Coventry as well, and then it kind of swelled a bit, and it was yeah, it was pretty mad really. And they were amazing. The um I saw them around the corner from Quiet's office on the last tour. I've yeah. never seen John, Quiet's John, dance as hard as he did. Well, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing for that. And then, you know, for me, the, the, the amount of sex in Nitsa Reb is ludicrous. And there was this uh, couple in front of us kind of who, who were talking in <laughs> Swedish about what they were going to do to each other in the hotel oh, sure, after man. the gig. And as, the, as it got more and more intense and Douglas was 
kind of really amping the crowd up. Yeah. It got, it, it, they were kind of whispering, whispering, but our Swedish friend, uh, Lynn, was there, yeah. who ran an excellent electronic night, and she was just translating all of this uh, <laughs> filth to us as Nights of Red played, which was we kind of really added to the performance. Well, that, that certainly wasn't going on in the London School of Economics in 1988. <laughs> I don't, there was certainly no, there was no women there, to be honest. Right. So. Was, but that uh, sounds great. I'm up for that. If nothing, you know, that sounds. I mean, but they are. I mean, he, I mean, he is. That's why he's, he's a pure rock out and out rock and roll performer, and he has all. He has all of that, mm. and he still has all of it because he look. You know, he's, he he looks the same pretty much. He looks great, and he you know he, he it's just amazing. Mm. Really, really amazing. There's, I mean, it's not necessarily a band. I was actually I wasn't. I'm, I probably wasn't going to choose them because even now, because like Nitzreb, people say, "Well, of course, Nitzreb." I play Nitzreb in a set. Nitzreb, sorry, they could play Nitzreb in the set. And uh, you know, it's, it's almost they've almost been uh, so much in, ingrained now in sort of popular new dance music that um, they're quite revealed. Mm. And um, but that's a good thing, you know. I think it's, it's but uh, yeah. One thing I've, I've always struck me listening to British Murder Boys is that, that to me, there's a real Knights Reb element to British Murder Boys, that sort of cheeky, hard sex thing. Was that, <laughs> is that fair or is that just my brain? No, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just you. Well, I think when we started doing that, me and Tony, Tony, when we started to do the British Murder Boys, and the climate at that particular time was, it was just against everything, really. It was, it was the wrong time to start that project. I mean... It, if we really wanted to maximise our, our our unit shifting potential, we'd have done it maybe four or five years previous to that. But it was in the midst of that minimal thing that was happening, and everything was like very melodic. It was very it was nice. So then for us to come up with what we did, and it was yeah, I think we we did actually sit down and think, okay, is this a good thing to do? Is this right? But of course it was right because it was natural for me and Tony to do that at a particular time. But it's, it's full of sex. Full of it, full of sex and hard beats. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and more a sex religion. and hard beats now, again, uh, from Germany. Um, <laughs> it, we have Einstürzen de Neubauten and Kuss. So uh, thank you for picking Neubauten, oh. one of my favourite groups, sometimes my favourite groups, depending on how warm it is or what day it is. You know what, it's so hot in here at the moment, it does feel like the cooler, in the, in the, you know, in The Great Escape or something. <laughs> I feel like we, we're, we feel like Steve McQueen, it's so hot. And we haven't even got any water, have we? We've just got this really strong coffee it's that's great. now gone to gravel at the Gra- bottom of the cup. <laughs> Which is, a, yeah, very Neubauten. It's very Neubauten, yeah. Yeah, yeah. very Neubauten. Grainy stuff. Um yeah, what, what was your? How did Neubauten fit into your kind of music growing up? Well, well, again, I think it was like it, it was a definitely a continuation of the Some Bizarre thing. Um, I was very, I might the, the, the first the first twelve inch I bought was the Yugong twelve inch, and that was on Some Bizarre because I loved the cover and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And I'd heard about obviously I'd heard about this band, and you know you read about this band, and of course it was connected and. Um, and all of a sudden, it was just—it was welcomed into my sphere, and it was—it was so natural. And it, 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 yet again, it was so special. And it seemed—it it just seemed otherworldly in the way that DAF sounded to me originally. 
and it was so special. And actually, I think you know what? I think the first time I, I did read about them, there's a there was a feature somewhere, and it was called. It had Blixer had um, he had like an eye mask on. I think it was a feature on Berlin, and it just looked amazing. But what was happening in Berlin? I think it was about her, about him, and a few other bands, and um, and it was all these things always they, they really developed, and they were they they were there just you know bubbling under and then all of a sudden it, it really made sense at a certain time a certain period for me and uh yeah it was just amazing you know with everything it's like everything coming right at the right time and Neu Batten was certainly one of those bands really I think I think if I it was the right time for me to listen to them mm. you know because it wasn't that much for me there wasn't that much going on then you so know one of the things I think about Neu Batten that I, that I really love and is is the humour of them you know like You Gung is one of the funniest songs about cocaine ever written it's just <laughs> absolutely incredible I am the entire Chinese people you know well, it's fantastic. Well, I never got that until oh, well, there's all razor blades on on the cover, and you know, until re- you know, actually not recently, but yeah, I thought, oh, that's true. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, he's he's. Um, I mean, oh my God, Blix Bargeld is amazing. I mean, he really. I think when whenever when you go anywhere, if you go to move to a different city, you know, you have all these notions in your head about stuff. And when I moved to Berlin, I certainly had the the Bowie and the issue where I'm going there because I'm. Really, the issue wood and Bowie thing, and of course it was. But Neubauten were, were there as well. You know, I wanted to walk the streets where Belixir did, and, and the funny thing was, it's, it's, I did, and you, I saw him regularly in Berlin at that particular time. You know, the late, the mid nineties and stuff. And it, it, there's so many great, funny stories about him. But he's, he's such a. He's the only person who's ever replied to when I've written to him. He's the only person ever pop star has ever replied to me. Oh, did he? Yeah, um, I think there was. The only other one, I think Toya replied to me. Did you used to write to pop stars a lot? Yeah, I did, actually. And look, yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> what did I you say? Um, I think probably, can I give you, can I get your autograph or something like that? Yeah. Stuff like that. What did that. you say to Blixer? I think it was the time of the, the supporter CD thing came out, and I just sort of, I think it was, a, it was a certain time for me in my life, and I just emailed him. Just it was quite genuine. I didn't even know it was actually. I just said, "This is a really amazing. It's really made me think and enjoy music a lot more." And he wrote back, and it was a lovely email and a very, very, very hugely genuine. You know, genuine and very gen- mm. generous as well. And it was just uh, very special. But then the other, you got these great stories. And you know, my friend was, he was. You know, I went to the Schwarz Cafe, which was, used to be in Berlin a lot many years ago, and Blixer was sitting there at a big huge round table 10 seater table he was the only person sitting there and I was at the other table waiting for my friend and anyway my friend came in there was no chair at my table and he just went up to the table where Blixer was sitting and said excuse me can I can I grab a chair is this free and Blixer went it's not free in German <laughs> and my friend okay just, and he sat there and no one came to join Blixer <laughs> and, and we would just laugh about that so much and it was just the best. I mean, that that was my, you know, it was awesome. It's exactly what you want him to be, you know, him to be, mm. you know. I mean, it's quite quite intimidating, actually. He is, yeah. And well, I've interviewed him a few times, and he, you know, what well, he, he can be quite intimidating, but also very lovely and very smart and very funny. Well, like, you know, well, I know he is. I mean, he's yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he is. That's why I like him, you know. And that's why you, re- and I think that comes through in the music. You want, you definitely want to be part of that world that the Blixabar people like Blixabar Geld are part of, and what they're. Because they're investing so much in their music, and I think what they give to you, it, it really is fantastic. Because you do learn so much from that. Mm. You, you know, you learn possibilities of what not to do and what you can do with the music. And that was that was the influence, massive influence on me. You know, hugely. Okay, we've got one more record left, which is 
Nicky Sudden. Yeah, man. And the great Pharaoh. That was Nicky Sudden, Carl O'Connor's final choice of his nine songs for the Quiet Earth Hour podcast special. <laughs> uh, we were talking before we came on about why Nicky Sudden's and Spellmats never, never got big, and about Midland's failure. What, yeah, I mean, what is that? Because I was when I was choosing this. Obviously, I think we were talking about it before. I was obviously the, the the natural thing that I should choose. I should choose a Bad Seed song or a Birthday Party or a Roland Howard or a Mick Harvey song. And I just think at the moment I'm finding. a uh, because of well, you know th- things recently Nick Cave's recent album coming out and the, f- the film I find it kind of difficult to listen to it in a, in, a, in a very very good way you know and I feel very positive but I still need to process it I, th- I was thinking so I was listening through a lot of things recently especially the Dig Lazarus Dig album and I was listening to one of the tracks on this it Albert Goes West mm. and I was thinking and I was listening to it and thinking, oh, hang on I know that track and I went it, no it's it, that's Nicky Sudden you know or if it's so and I know and I, and I thought, well, you know what? There's a connection to everything that I've done. And Nicky Sudden is it is a connection in a way, but he's, he's nothing to do with any of the artists I've chosen before, uh, I've, I've made a choice of before. And, uh, but he, and somehow he's connected because of... Because um, obviously his friendship with Roland Howard and the great albums he did with... The, the, the records he did with Roland Howard and, you know, and, and the Bad Seeds as well. But it, it's just difficult with Nicky Sudden because... I, I was so aware of seeing him so much. Well, he, well mainly Dave Cusworth, who was uh, a real Birmingham legend. Uh, I used to see them quite, you know, infrequently around Birmingham City Centre, walking around, especially when there's a Jacobites gig on. And they just looked so out of place in Birmingham City Centre. You know, Dave Cusworth's about sort of six foot and stuff, six foot three. And, you know, he, he just looks like an elongated Keith Richards. And they, the, the way they dress, and you know, Nicky Sudden was this Sid Barrettess, and they're just so romantic and so tragic and so, you know, I use the word again, heroic. And they were they they looked much bigger than they actually were. They should have been in a huge band. They should have been in LA, mm. and um, but it was never to be. And obviously, Nicky Sudden from the Swell Map, he was in the Swell Maps. Who, I think they got. I think people the swell the swell maps position now and everything has been it's, it's been determined recent you know in the last twenty years or so we we've become reacquainted with them and the, you know people do like them again but it, yeah it's almost this wonderful failure because they tried so hard and they nobody ever gave them the break you know it's just especially Nicky Sudden and this record this track I mean he's really channeling his Neil Young sort of. You know, in the New England, and it was so close to great success. I think for me, he really, he really everything that was good about the swell maps that he did, he really got down this great verse, chorus, verse, chorus of this track. But of course, it never happened, and then you know, sadly, he died, and and this never really happened. You know, never people didn't sort of rediscover him on mass. You know, but it's a very personal thing for me. You know, Nicky Thurden's one of those things very personal because maybe because it's a Midlands thing. You know, but um, I just yeah, it's just a rock and roll track, and I'm I'm happy with that. Really, it's just good for capping off. What is it about the the Midlands that makes so much great music that people kind of 
possibly don't sort of pick up on in a way. You know, there's. Yeah. Is it because the Midlands sort of disowns or isn't interested in the fact that it created heavy metal? Or is it, you know, why does somebody like Mick Harris or even Justin Broderick, you know, we, we write about him, but kind of these people who are incredible and do all these very diverse things yeah. get a little bit ignored? Well, quite simply, we're not, we're, not, we're not good talking about ourselves. We're not good about blowing our own trumpets. You know, we, it's not, I mean, Manchester does that br- brilliantly. It's always done that brilliantly, talking about them. You know, you can, they can blow their own trumpet and talk about themselves, and they, they, they do it very well. You know, Liverpool as well, and Sheffield to an extent, but we've just, we're, we're just not good at communicating that. Whatever reason, and um, of course, there's, there's so many amazing. I mean, you know, there's so, there's so much good stuff. I mean, you know, Nicky Sudden and um, they did, they do, and Dave Cusworth actually, they do a, a trip, um, a cover version of a band called uh, cover version of a track called Big Store, which is pretty much the Birmingham anthem, really, because uh, Stephen Tintin Duffy and Dave Cusworth wrote this track, which pretty much predates the Smiths by a couple of years. If you listen to it, people go, "Ah, oh, what are you talking about? Not nonsense and everything." and uh, but it's, it's true, if you listen to those tracks, we are very, very, very good at producing them, but we're just not good at talking about ourselves. You know, we, whether we don't get through to people or people can't get past certain things about us, or I think because we, we make fun of ourselves quite a lot as well, which I don't think, it's, it's, not, it's not to our benefit, really. You know, <laughs> you've got great, you know, you look, you've got what's, um, what's, his, what's his face from the poppies? Um, oh, Poppy itself is the big, mass, fantastic, Hollywood sound Clint, Clint. Clint Mansell yeah. yeah you know I mean he, he, you know he's massive he, he was so proud of me you know many a night going back on the number nine bus from gigs with Clint Mansell on the back really shouting yeah it was great you have them or the, pe- the wonder stuff or the Neds on the back of the bus going home after a gig yeah you know it was great you know but we don't re- you know we don't commu- I don't, you know I think we don't communicate it correctly or we don't get through to people but Hey, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Have you seen that? I mean, that, talking about that, I mean, that, did you see that felt, the Lawrence of Belgravia film? I mean... Yeah, I've not seen it yet. I haven't um, seen it. I'd love to see it, actually. Talking about Brummies who don't get through to people, these, yeah. these fantastic failures. He, he came around our office once for a cup of tea, oh, did yeah. Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, he was dropping something off. <laughs> so for, for, oh, yeah. for, in the office and oh, okay. uh, came around for some tea. It was very nice. He'd read some Quiet articles because... Uh, Zoe at Mute Records prints off bits of the internet for him because they're mates. And oh, yeah. Reads, reads bits. so brilliant. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think I'm, I'm, glad, well, I'm glad about people like Lawrence and stuff, I think, because people are re- at least get it now. And that's really kind of nice. Well, I love about him. He's, he's always convinced he's still going to be a pop star one day. Which is that's, brilliant. That's, he's never given up on that idea. Well, it's like Alan Vega. It's this, it's this fantastic thing within them that they realise they, you know, they didn't. Alan Vega, you always used to say, "Well, look, we could have been as big as Soft Cell, because, you know." But they stole our. No, Alan, no, you you made you know you made Frankie teardrop. You you couldn't. But that's this fantastic belief that people have, which keeps it all going. I love that. I mean, we all have that to an extent. I mean, I think when you finish a record, you think, "Well, this is going to be the biggest record that changes everything." I think you know we all do it to an extent. Well, people who are, you know, who want that dinner date with eternity do anyway. You know. Okay, all right. Well, um, let's finish there on the dinner date with eternity. Let's um, go for it. Let's, let's go, go on that dinner, date, go with dinner date with eternity uh, down at Nando's. Uh, thank you very much, Cole. Thank you so much. Luke. Thanks for doing that, that and awesome. uh, thanks as ever to producer Seb White. This is a Quiet Sour podcast, and we'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank God that's over. Time to put the poof back in its dusty slot. 
you were enduring the Quietus Hour podcast. And if you're a real glutton for punishment, you can listen to the entire programme featuring all the music via our website at thequietus.com forward slash radio. If you'd like to support what we do, there is a support button on the front page of the website uh, where you can make donations and help us carry on our uh, fantastic work. Or you can just pay us to stop. <laughs>